0: The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground.
1: So people probably noticed Dharma Corps is here tonight in the community room, so we want to make sure if you go out into the hall to keep it quiet in case they're sitting or doing some quiet activity. And they're here every other week. Monday nights. So next week we'll have small groups when they're not here so we can spread out. But I'll put aside more time for conversation today. Feel free if you have questions while I'm talking to raise them. And I thought what would be useful tonight is in light of this study we've undertaken to wake up to the body as it actually is and to look at Really diverse teachings the Buddha has about being awake to the body or using the body as a place for investigation. I thought it'd be useful to understand that the mind, uh, the mind's relationship to the body, or the way we use the body in terms of practice, is twofold. One, the body is can be, if we train that way, the ground for concentration. Or the stability of awareness, and uh, the Buddha talks about this quite a bit in the discourses. How awareness, continuity of awareness of the body, can be used to train the mind to be really bright and clear. And uh, it's pretty remarkable to the what degree the body can. Um, be developed in that way. And then the other related reason we use awareness of the body is to have insight, to understand the nature of things. And of course, you know, in our experience it's always an object being known. So in this case this course, the body is being known. And uh, we're interested in getting to know the mind, but It doesn't matter if the mind is knowing the body or knowing something else. This is how we get to know the mind. And in particular, how we get to know the mind that suffers and the mind that's free from suffering. So awareness of the body is the vehicle or can be a vehicle to understand how it is this heart gets all bound up and how it is our heart Mind is free at times. And of course, there are other avenues or ways to sort of undertake the study. And of course, in daily life, we're using whatever shows up. But as a particular training, the body will give us, teach us everything we need to learn. There is nothing we can't learn in terms of being a happy, free, loving, wise human being that we can't use in the context of being aware of the body, waking up to the body. It's not like there's a different mind, right? The mind that knows the body is the mind. It's not like some part of the mind isn't there when the mind is knowing the body. Whatever this is, whatever conditioning, it's going to show up in being aware of the in-breath or being aware of the body sitting or being aware of walking, or whatever we do. So um, I'm going to read a little bit from this sutta, this discourse, Mindfulness Immersed in the Body. It's different than the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, which I read a little bit from last week. And I sent out uh, today in an email, and it's also up on our webpage, buddhistudies.khamagamameditation.org. And remember, You can always find all the recordings. I don't think the talk from last week is up there yet, but it will be up soon. So you can find the talks. You can find all of the uh, study materials up there. You can find the archives from the 2010 course in Mindfulness of the Body and all the talks given during that eight-week class. And you can find the archive of all the emails sent. And that archive is off to the right, and it just says something like email archive, and you click on that and you get all the emails. And again, that's meditation.org So even if you're not on the email list, which everybody hopefully is now, you can always go to the web page and get everything that all the special people who are on the email list get. And this particular discourse is in the study guide that uh, Thanasara Bhikkhu um, has that I sent the link out today, and that's on the webpage, and that is quite thick. One of the things in that collection of study materials is this discourse, in case you want to take a look at it at some point. I won't read the whole thing, but I'll read part of it, and part of it's very familiar because you have heard the mindfulness of breathing instructions before, but I'm just going to read them again. So this first part of mindfulness of body involves this mindfulness of breathing practice. So the Buddha says here, breathing in long, one discerns I'm breathing in long. Or breathing out long, one discerns I'm breathing out long. Or breathing in short, one discerns I'm breathing in short. Or breathing out short, one discerns I'm breathing out short. One trains oneself, I will breathe in sensitive to the entire body. One trains oneself, I will breathe out sensitive to the entire body. One trains oneself, I will breathe in calming bodily fabrications. I take this to mean we're calming, we're on purpose, we're intending, right? there's a, We're bringing an intention to the mind that the way the mind is relating to body, body sensations, that that relationship is not agitated. It's not demanding, it's not controlling, it's allowing, it's forgiving, it's kind, it's patient, it's interested. So that's the calming of bodily fabrications, like what arises in the mind knowing the body. Those are the fabrications, the ideas I have, like this isn't the body I want to feel, you know, breathing in. This isn't the body I want to feel, breathing out. This isn't the body I want to feel, that's what we're calming down any reverberations as the mind opens to the body, we calm that because we know, because we've experienced it in the past, it's possible breathing in, receiving the experience of the body as it is, not being for or against it, being intimate without being controlling or demanding or wanting it it to be other than what it is. So the next instruction again, one trains oneself, I breathe in, I breathe in calming bodily fabrication and one trains oneself, I breathe out calming bodily fabrications. And as one remains thus heedful, ardent and resolute, any memories and resolves related to the worldly life, right? The world of attachments and to-do lists and worries and hopes and fears, right? Any memories and resolves related to the world are abandoned. And with their abandoning, the mind gathers and settles inwardly, grows unified, centered. This is how a practitioner develops mindfulness immersed in the body. So one trains oneself, I will breathe out calming bodily fabrications, breathing in calming bodily fabrications. And as one remains thus heedful, ardent, resolute, right? Resolute means... We know for this period of time I don't need I may out of habit think about something, worry about something, plan something, but I won't do it intentionally because I know it's okay for this amount of time not to pick up the world of this and that, future, past, what I need to do, what I should have done. That we know we're resolved in our mind, like and this is what we remind ourselves at the beginning of the set. I know for this 30 minutes or this hour that I don't have to do anything but this training. And you might actually want to be specific, like not assume you have that resolve. Actually set that resolve at the beginning of a sit. For this period of time, I don't really need to figure anything out. It's not wrong to set aside time to figure things out in your life. That's a good thing to do. But that's not your meditation practice. That's something else. That's setting aside some time to think deeply about things in your life that need some deep thought. But not doing your meditation. So we resolve that I don't have to do that at this time. So then when we do catch ourselves doing that because it's a habit, then we can say, Honey, not now. We decided not to do that now. So let's come back Breathing in, sensitive to the body. Breathing out, sensitive to the body. And with their abandoning, one's mind gathers and settles inwardly, grows unified and centered. This is how a practitioner develops mindfulness immersed in the body. And then in this, the Buddha goes on to talk about these other ways of practicing, the, the four postures, daily activities, breaking down, deconstructing the body into parts, into the four elements, the decomposition of the body or the um, falling apart of the body when it dies. And we'll cover these in the weeks ahead. And then for all of these, he talks about the jhanas. So this deeper absorption, right? Because when... The, the technical definition of the jhanas, it's sort of a, a little bit of a cultish thing because everybody wants the jhanas because there's a lot of healing uh, in the mind when the mind gets that quiet. But the technical definition, and so you can use this in terms of uh, understanding how this training is developing for you in any given set is How many of the hindrances are present and with what strength are they there in the mind? How much greed is there active right now in the mind? How much aversion? How much doubt? How much is my mind under the influence of dullness or restlessness right now? Because the definition of these moving toward these deeper states of concentration is when the hindrances aren't present so there the mind bright steady continuous the awareness continuous and there in that bright steady continuous awareness there's no greed that can be discerned there's no aversion that can be discerned there's no dullness or restlessness the mind isn't doubting oh this you know this is a state of samadhi this is the definition of samadhi the other way to kind of assess how this develops, there are different lists, like in the discourse the Buddha gives on mindfulness of breathing, he talks about calm, like this sutta does as well, and from calm the arising of joy and noticing the joy, noticing sukha, that inner happiness, I sometimes call it ease or contentedness of the heart, but it really more specifically, is that inner pleasure or inner bliss, and then stillness or peacefulness or equanimity. So these flavors, like just the progression of those flavors of the mind, will give you a sense of whether your mind is settling down or not. And lamenting that your mind isn't settling down doesn't help what helps is the wisdom that's interested in what are the causes for the mind settling and what are the causes for the mind being agitated right and only get interested in addressing those causes that lead to settling and abandoning the causes that lead to agitation we just give ourselves to that because its first part of practice is always emphasizes Settling. Because the second part of practice, which is uncovering the possibility of freedom, realizing freedom, the sort of inherent freedom of the mind, it may be already here and now, but our mind's pretty good at not recognizing it, not understanding it. So, how are we going to change that? Well, we have to break the spell or the enchantment. Our mind is enchanted with what's agitating, what's intoxicating, what's interesting for me. right? We're just suckers for anything that has some self-drama associated with it. Like even, I'm a bad meditator. It just seems so relevant to sort of take that theme up or I'm a good meditator, but to take up some evaluative theme like being good or bad, that just seems interesting. But that doesn't lead to the development of the mind, the calming of the mind, the stabilizing the mind, or the arising of insight. It leads to stress and suffering. Wondering whether we're a good meditator or not. Wondering if we're better than other people who've been practicing as long as I have. You know? Or am I behind? Behind the curve? And then What's the reason that I'm behind the curve? You know, and we think about it. Well, this happened to me. If this hadn't happened to me, if I didn't have this disability or this, then I probably would be ahead of the curve because I try harder than most people. And this, it doesn't end. You know, the kind of self stories we have about even our practice, let alone the stories we have about everything else, there really isn't an end to them. So a good definition of wisdom is wisdom is always interested in the causes for real happiness and the causes for real suffering. And it goes to work, abandoning the causes for actual suffering and setting in motion the causes for real happiness. Right? Wisdom is totally pragmatic in this way. So after he talks about the four jhanas, the deeper states of concentration that come when the mind abandons using the awareness of the body or awareness of the breath or loving kindness, the feeling of loving kindness or any number of other meditative themes by giving the mind, the heart giving itself to those themes so fully in such a a pure way, then the hindrances are abandoned and deeper states of concentration arise. And in these deeper states of concentration, the mind experiences a kind of temporary freedom from suffering. because Not because the mind is really free from suffering, but the habit of suffering is deeply suppressed when there's a deep state of concentration. And as soon as that concentration goes away the habits of worrying and comparing and you know all the different ways our mind gets in stressful states, that will reemerge. So that's why concentration is really useful, but not an end in itself. So what we do is we get the deeper states and then we use the stability to investigate. But let me just finish what the Buddha says because he's talking about how uh, the sort of resilience of that Kind of concentration. It's a section called Fullness of Mind. Practitioners, whoever develops and pursues mindfulness immersed in the body encompasses whatever skillful qualities are on the side of clear knowing. Just as whoever pervades the great ocean with one's awareness encompasses whatever riverlets flow down into the ocean. In the same way, whoever develops and pursues mindfulness immersed in the body encompasses whatever skillful qualities are on the side of clear knowing. Right? So when, we're, when we've abandoned the hindrances, then the, basically the Buddha is saying, when you put aside greed, anger, dullness, restlessness, and doubt, then the seven factors of awakening are there, or whatever list of wholesome qualities you want to bring to mind. But the seven factors for those who don't know it, know them are mindfulness, Energy, investigation, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. So it's like you can be interested in developing these wholesome factors or interested in abandoning the unwholesome factors, but either way, you can't sort of get into a stable, clear, nimble, bright, did I say balanced, state of mind, without it being the kind of mind that can see things as they are. If when you're really concentrated you feel a little stoned and sort of out of it, that's not samadhi. That's like a trance state. It may be very still, it may be very calm, but if it's not the mind that can that is bright and wieldy and nimble and does what it's told to do, like if, it, if, you, if the mind has a wholesome thought, like is there equanimity, that bright mind of samadhi sees the equanimity. And if the mind's interested in the body, it sees the body. The, that kind of mind, what we call samadhi, is very nimble and responsive and happy to do the work of investigation. It, it doesn't neurotically need to investigate anything. But it's happy to take things apart. It's happy to pick up a theme. Like if you heard an interesting Dharma talk and the person was talking about impermanence and for whatever reason that theme arose in your mind there when the mind's in that really settled, clear, bright state, then all of a sudden the mind, the wisdom in the mind understands, yeah, this is a relevant theme. Let's go to work. Let's see how things are coming and going. So, this is how we use the body, both during the day in all these different ways that we'll un- unpack in the weeks ahead, and also formally in meditation, like when we're doing the mindfulness of breathing or using the breath to be sensitive to the whole body, we're creating this really bright and stable. And this is the interesting, seemingly paradoxical uh, nature of samadhi. On the one hand, it's very stable. I mean, the mind, body, heart feels held, like solid. It's a funny word to use because we often talk about things being open or coming and going. But the awareness feels like unshakable. And at the same time, Things are very relaxed, right? Because that stability of mind isn't really dependent on conditions. It's sort of uh, letting the conditions of the body, right? It's really comes about from being aware of the body, but not controlling it. That's why there's such an emphasis on relaxation if you want to develop wholesome concentration as opposed to get. Stoned. If you just want to get stoned, you could try real hard and you'll get into sort of some kind of altered state, but it won't be samadhi. It'll be some kind of trance state, you know. I remember when I was a kid, you know, I was grew up as a Catholic and we my sister and I used to have contests about, you know, how many Hail Marys and sort of <laughs> You know, it's just like it was like a little bit yeah, putting yourself in an altered state in the same way that you do when you you know would repeat words over and over again or spin around. You know, kids like altered states. And we can do that even as an adult with our meditation, you know, by forcing the mind into some nook and cranny and then being in that nook and cranny the mind goes, Whoa, <laughs> this is different. And it is different than kind of the normal state of mind. But the question is: Is it helpful? You know, am I actually seeing something, learning something that's really helpful? Yeah, Bob.
0: What's your advice if we no feel that
1: sensation? Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's lawful. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you don't want to. Uh, y- yeah, you want to be. You want to take responsibility for it, and you don't want to keep doing that because. It becomes a habit. So you want to get interested. Sometimes, like on retreat, especially when you're in that rut, or you might want to change how you sit. Like you might want to sit outside with your eyes open. Because you don't want the mind to kind of, you know, because life is hard and we have busy lives and we're overactive, it just makes so much sense to develop this um, habit of like a a fetish around tranquility. You know, just anything that is removed from my daily existence. And, but, you know, we have to listen to that desire in the mind and cultivate a more wholesome kind of tranquility and have a lot of different ways that we take care of the mind, that desire of the mind, like taking a nap. You know, or resting in different ways, or changing up. So if we're, you know, like have a job where we got to really be on, um, then maybe we can give the mind something else to do, like change the focus, so that it doesn't start corrupting our meditation practice. Sitting with your eyes open is a, a really useful way to undo habits of going into a trance-like state. Because it's not so easy to do that with your eyes open, and also sitting in a space, it's nice if it's uh, you know, it's not easy if there's talking, but the birds talking that works pretty well, you know. So nature sounds, wind, rain, birds, uh, movement of natural movement can be useful because it's engaging but it doesn't send the mind into a trance it keeps the mind alert and interested that things are coming and going but the body works well too you know generally what happens if we stay actually connected to bodily sensations there's a lot of discomfort and not about sitting you know that's you know obviously the knee can start to hurt right away or after a while or the back but assuming that you're able to find a way to sit and you've developed the strength and flexibility so you can sit. There's just the residual pain in the body of having lived with greed, anger, and delusion for a long time. And that is interesting. It's unpleasant, but it's interesting. And I bet, and people are sometimes embarrassed to say this, and I'll read something, a wonderful article by Joko Beck tonight, and hopefully somebody will scan in this book and send it out for all of us. But um, if you ask a lot of experienced meditators what their primary object of meditation is, one of the common answers to that question is the sort of basic fundamental discomfort of the energy body. And it's changing. And the interesting thing is because it's an engaging object, the mind, the awareness can be really stable with it and alert. But because it's continuous, it's also really, uh, it has samadhi, right? So you can get good samadhi where the mind is both stable, but also really bright, interested, not uh, dull, not sort of uh, stoned. Yeah, Mira. Well, I just, some people use that. Um, It's just, you know, there's sometimes people call it dharma pain, meaning like when you're busy in your daily life, you don't notice it. But when your mind gets quiet and sensitive, you notice it. It kind of comes to the surface. So it's sort of, and it makes so much sense just intellectually that, you know, we move through life with a lot of tension. And whatever the mind does gets... Laid down on this body. And given that we've been doing it for a long time, and maybe many lifetimes, so then, you know, the body is going to reflect that impact from the stress of the mind, from the tightness of the mind. And so when we take enough time and let go of the surface level of our self-created dramas about my to do list and this and that and just settle into the body, we'll feel that. We'll feel sort of the residual uneasiness of the body, this ease of the heart. And uh, and that can be a nice way too to but you have to <laughs> it seems like, yeah, you know, why would I want to pay attention to that? Well, it's deeply healing for one, and it's really useful for developing uh, Samadhi. And you can have uh, a lot of like a really long sit and even though in a way it's unpleasant, but the stability with it is pleasant. right And at some point, the fact that the mind is stable and interested and bright and has Samadhi, that trumps, the fact that the object of awareness, this energy body, is unpleasant. The pleasantness of the samadhi is more relevant than the unpleasantness of the object. And that's why you can sit for a long time. I mean, relatively speaking. Because the mind doesn't mind doing that work. There's a inherent satisfaction, relatively speaking, in doing that kind of work. Yeah, Leela. Attending to the discomfort in the body, whatever, and that triggers a story. He's got the oh, mic. Yes, yes, sorry. When you're focused on the body, the discomfort in the energy body sitting, and
0: that triggers a story. You know, Vajrayana Yoga teaches that you should go with the story and get
1: rid of all those negative feelings and so forth, isn't that something separate? Or
0: should you stay only with the sensations in the body?
1: Right, but the sensations of the body, like you I say,
0: a yeah.
1: lot of mental activity will arise around it, and that mental activity can either uh, be a cause for distraction or can help illuminate what is here and now. So as long as the mind is attending to what's here and now, some thoughts support that, some thoughts distract the mind away. And it's just a question of of whether the mind is afraid of what's arising in the body, and then the thoughts generally are a, a defense mechanism. Or the mind has enough stability, enough balance, that it's And it understands the fruitfulness of the work, right? And so it's not afraid of the discomfort of it because it knows it's fruitful, it's useful, it's healing, it's liberating. There's actually the flavor of that is built in to the experience. It's like uh, the three uh, stages we talked about last week. You know, and it doesn't matter if it's just ordinary knee pain or this more subtle uneasiness of the body, in and of itself, right? There's a lot of freedom just in moving from the idea, I have a lot of knee pain tonight, to throbbing, burning, aching, or whatever that is, right? Because to be on that level of the pain in and of itself, the throbbing in and of itself, means that the second arrow, of worrying about it or defining it as my problem because I have a painful knee, that painful mental activity has ceased for a while. So the mind is free of that. And it's just the throbbing, the burning, or the actual play or movement of sensation. So there's some freedom just in being there. And then the more that's there, then we enter the second stage where we begin to, there's enough stability where we begin, whenever the way the mind is relating to those painful sensations of the knee, whenever that way of relating shifts this way or shifts that way, the mind has enough stability to notice what that way of relating has set in motion. Like, oh, there's a few second arrows there. You know, I'm hating it. Or, there's less reactivity, less resistance. So, Moment by moment by moment, the mind is relating to the pain in the knee. In some moments, the mind is relating in a really skillful way, so there's less suffering. And in other moments, the mind is relating in less of a skillful way, more of a sense of self, and it's more stress. So the second stage, the mind is really getting, and that's how you kind of get a sense of the different thoughts. Are those thoughts causes for suffering, or are they not? causes for suffering and what does the mind do with those thoughts is that a cause for suffering or not right because that's that second stage everything the mind is aware of is in terms of is this a cause for suffering or not is this increasing stress in the mind or releasing stress in the mind right because that's the stage where the mind is able to observe what comes and goes or how things are unfolding lawfully and when we're aware of things unfolding lawfully, the most in, important or relevant thing is is stress unfolding you know, now in this moment. Is it getting worse or better? Because of all the lawful unfoldings, that's the thing that's most interesting to the mind. Am I digging a hole deeper? Or am I crawling out and seeing the light of day? And then the last is to is a kind of more radical... Abandoning of any, uh, of even being the practitioner, so of any doing whatsoever, and experiencing the freedom of that. Like as I understand better and better what's skillful and what's not skillful, the mind is led in the direction of a more full and complete release. But we don't. That move can't come from this egocentric point of view. The ego can't decide to put it all down. It doesn't happen that way because that will always be an activity, an egocentric activity. So, the way that letting go happens is getting to this first, getting to the place where we're seeing things in and of themselves, and then in that stable place, observing what makes things worse and what makes things better, and that the natural evolution of that. Is the putting down of whatever needs to be put down. Because we've got this barometer, what binds up the mind, what releases the mind. And that will lead to the full unbinding, the letting go. Yeah. Somebody else had a hand up, Charlie? It's
0: on. Um, I really appreciate, I really appreciate you bringing this up uh, about the energy body. Um, You know, I've been, I've practiced so many different ways that I have real awareness of my, you know, emotions, the difference between that and the sensations and then the energy body too. It was to the point where I thought that, I, I thought that I was like almost possessed years ago and it was, it was my emotions I was trying to escape from and my sensations. And now that I've really have the understanding that I'm just trying to be with them. And there's a lot there. There's this reservoir that's there that I'm, that I'm processing over time. And so the way that you just put that, um, which is, okay, so I've experienced that. That's what I've been working on is just that, where um, I'm feeling my energy body, and it's uncomfortable. And I don't want to be in my own body and just, like, watching that. And um, so when I'm done with a practice like that, and it, it happens like that, it's it gets... It's absorbing, and then there's an ease, and the ease is also not running from it anymore. And so what I'm aware of is is that I'm constantly running either through medication or avoidance in my life. And then this is the place where this is the this is the core. This is the core thing. This is actually facing not wanting to be inside of my body. You know, um, so I haven't heard you, uh, anyone say really about this kind of a practice. It's very helpful, um, and. Also, the way that you address it is useful in a different way, and that's because um, one of the things that I do that's unskillful is I go, well, geez, I shouldn't be focusing on this pain so much, you know, uh, or this thing that, that feels so painful, you know. But yet, the net result at the end of the meditation is is, is that for the rest of that day, man, I'm light, you know, I'm really light. But then the reflex is to, okay, I don't want to turn back there, and then I don't face it again until it's like... So one of the things that I read about it, I googled resistance and meditation, and um, uh, boy, there's a lot on that. <laughs> <laughs> and um, one of the things that was skillful to read uh, was someone saying uh, to the effect that um, uh, when when you uh, face it, when you face resistance itself, uh, and when you brace it, that becomes the meditation. When you're just focusing on the meditation, so. Um, it's skillful for me to get permission, I guess, so that I don't you know, have a reaction against it, because doubt is one of my hindrances. So I guess thank you. Yeah. And, and not that this is true for you, Charlie, but
1: we have to understand that uh, and it's different, it will be different for us at different moments, and some of us will be more inclined, but there is a shadow to what we've been talking about the last 15 or 20 minutes, which is a subtle kind of deer in headlights, there I am, there's some stability, and I'm aware of the discomfort, this sort of underlying unpleasantness, and I'm sort of staring at it, and it seems on the surface like I'm practicing well, I'm being brave, I'm hanging in there, and I do at the end of the sit feel concentrated, because there is a certain kind of concentration, but it's tainted with aversion. And so one of the things we have to learn is to detect that aversion and the subtle wanting to break through, wanting whatever, you know, whatever subtle quality of resistance might be there in the mind. Because what we tend not to want to do in those moments, if we've got this shadow going on in our practice, is we don't want to retreat. You know, it's like, No, we want to break through. And uh, retreating might be like, for example, noticing the beautiful qualities of mind. Not letting the pain be the object of awareness, the discomfort be the object of awareness, but actually noticing some of the beautiful qualities of mind or bringing up compassion, self-compassion or loving kindness, or coming back to the breath, this more gross object and, and really using it more as an exclusive object so that the mind isn't going to the pain. And the interesting thing, like if you just check from time to time and you're resistant, like like you don't want to leave the pain, that's the telltale sign that there's an agenda in the mind. You know, like, oh no, I'm on a mission and I'm not going to and we kind of get stuck a little bit blinded by the you know, the work we think we need to do, because we have some sense and probably even from direct experience, that when I open to this, things happen, right? Healing happens or freedom happens. So then we just want to keep knocking on that door. But remember what I said earlier, wisdom isn't trying to have freedom. Wisdom is like, um, I mean, I don't know too much about dogs, but, you know, some of those dogs that have been conditioned for who knows how many centuries to be bird dogs or her- herding dogs or whatever they might be, they just like to do the work. It isn't about getting done with the work, they just like to do the work. And wisdom's like that. Wisdom just wants to do the work. And it doesn't matter if it is retreating or it's just going to do the next thing that, that's good for the system. And it doesn't have any so you know what skin in the game. It's just like doing the right thing. That's what wisdom does. But when we have skin in the game, then we're going to like, "Oh, I don't want to back down. You, know, I'm already here with this yucky stuff. You know, I don't want to go away from it." And then, oh, and then we know we're stuck. You know, And then we have to sort of break the spell, whatever that is, and do something else with our mind, redirect the mind in different ways. This is another good reason to do different retreats with different teachers from time to time because they'll invite you to practice in different ways. And then we see how stuck or dependent we are in practicing the same way, always doing the same thing. And we learn a lot more. When I mean, it's okay to have basic ways that our mind likes to work, train our mind, but it's nice to make your mind do other things so that you see, you know, you see from different angles like why the mind is doing that. Oh, something's crept in. Yeah, Jenna, you want to pass the mic over, Charlie? We can just, people can pass it. Freeman? Oh, sorry. Well, in terms of samadhi, that, an in, in investigation, that mind is happy to do whatever it's asked to do. Now in deeper states, at some point, like, let's say you're in the vicinity of a deeper state of concentration, at some point, something will arise in the mind, a sense that the mind wants to drop in. And at that, at that point, you could just let that dropping in happen. And the mind will drop into a quiet place, and when it's done, it will reemerge from that quiet place. And when it's in that quiet place, it won't investigate, right? Because the whole point of that uh, more quiet absorption is it's like uh, investigation is too gross of an activity, and there's, no, there's really no... S- suffering and the end of suffering to investigate because the mind has retreated from that experience. So if and when you get to those deeper states and most people don't unless they're doing a lot of practice and they just have a talent or they've really taken that up I shouldn't say most people don't. Most people don't, don't very often get to those places where the mind is so withdrawn that it can't investigate. But there are definitely those states of concentration where the mind just can't concentrate. It's just just interested in being still. And that's the predominant. But it won't last forever. It may last for a couple hours, but at some point the mind will emerge from that and then you just continue on. So when the mind wants to drop in, you assess, like, why not? Why not let the mind drop in? You know, and it doesn't have to be seen as like a version of the world. It's just it's a natural movement of the mind to drop into a deep state. So that's the mo- that's the appropriate way to relate to the jhanas. Cultivate enough concentration that the hindrances have receded, and go to work at investigating, and that investigation will sustain the concentration. And if at some point in the work of being in the present moment, the mind notices that it wants to just drop in, then don't prevent it. Let the mind drop into a deep state until it's no longer in that deep state. And as it reemerges, then you just... The investigation, that part of the mind that is interested in suffering and the end of suffering or interested in that things are coming and going or interested in any of the sort of aspects of the mind, it will just start again. Yeah. So we have about 10 minutes left. So we've covered a lot of the territory that I wanted to cover tonight. Um, So there's, when, when you're doing your practice, just keep in mind, and again, they're going to overlap, but initially we want to emphasize creating stability so that there is a sense, a very real sense that it's not obscure of solidity or steadiness or stableness in the mind and often reflected in the body, like the body's content not to move much. So because the body and mind mirror each other, whatever's going on in the mind tends to be reflected in the body. And then, it's appropriate to be interested in that development of the mind, the causes for it, not interested in it in, and like, being attached to it, but like curious about like how, what's supporting this, what gets in the way. So don't be afraid to mess it up, because when you mess up your samadhi, your stability, then learn from it. Okay, well, what happened just then? Or I started getting excited. Yeah, you know, God, I've probably got some concentration, you know. And then, then you start to see the losing of stability in the mind, right? And more thoughts want to rush in and they're interesting thoughts and the mind wants to pick them up. And then you need to sort of, okay, now what works? Oh yeah, well I can do I can just do what I did before, right? Breathing in, sensitive to the whole body. Breathing out, sensitive to the whole body. So we can go back to those earlier instructions when we need to. But when the stability of the mind becomes more apparent, we're still aware of the body, we're still aware of the breath coming in, but now that's recede a little bit, and what's more interesting to the mind is the steadiness itself, whether it's in the form of calm or the joy, the brightness, the ease, the stillness. So we just notice the different elements of the solidity itself. And what supports and what undermines it. Now let me read a little bit from Joko Beck's article. And as I do that, maybe one of you can consider taking the book. This is a great book, by the way. It's Being Bodies, Buddhist Women on the Paradox of Embodiment. And there's wonderful articles by a number of uh, well-known Buddhist women teachers um, and the last chapter is by Joko Beck, which is one of the chapters. It's just two four pages that I'd like somebody to scan. And then there's also a chapter by another Zen teacher, Darlene Cohen, who was the abbess of the San Francisco Zen Center. Still alive as far as I know. And uh, this one's just like eight pages. And this will be good. Next week we'll talk more about pain, uh, physical pain. And this chapter is good. So if there's somebody who can take this book this week and... Read it if you want, but scan those two chapters and send me the links. Being Bodies, edited by Lenore Friedman and Susan Moon. Anybody want to scan this for the. Great, you can get it at the end, Edra. Thanks. So the last chapter is Our Substitute Life, Charlotte Jokoback. She's a wonderful, she's dead now, but a wonderful Zen teacher uh, for many years, the head of the San Diego Zen Center. I'll just skip around here and read a few sentences. She says, our very nature is enlightenment. What practice is about is seeing how we block our natural state of being and what it means to work through this blockage. And then skipping about. As we sit, we become increasingly sensitive to our patterns and strategies. Therapy can also help uncover them. But sitting, day after day, year after year, also builds the power and courage to move beyond seeing the mental stuff to the even more crucial step of returning to the bodily experience. Why return to the body? Why is it crucial to our practice and therefore our life? We return so we can experience directly, not in words, the quivering pain out of which our core belief was formed. When, in sitting or in life, we become aware of any disappointment, emotional reaction, any sense of dis-ease in our body, we know that we are picking up a trace of our core belief. So we need to ask ourselves, what is the core of this dis-ease? It's not a simple question that can be answered by a simple thought. In fact, thought of any sort, simple or complex, rational or irrational, cannot lead us to freedom from our core belief. Thinking is, of course, a valuable and indispensable tool in living. It just isn't the best tool in understanding what our life is. Only one endeavor helps. We must abandon our mistaken trust in thinking as a path to freedom and turn in one direction only, to experience in our body the pain of our core belief itself. We have to face the pain we have been running from. In fact, we need to learn to rest in it and let its searing power transform us. When we truly rest in this bodily sensation, there is there is a knowing, an exact resonating in the body. And finally, there is a spaciousness and peace in which we see ourselves and our actions in a new life, and a new light. And then skipping a bit. Until this return to bodily experience is the base of our sitting and our daily practice, our life will not transform. Why? Until our core belief is experienced directly in the body, even if mentally we understand it, it will continue to run our lives. Its poisonous footprints will be all over our living, our relationships, our work, everything, with accompanying discomfort and dissatisfaction. For instance, if we have the core belief, I'll never make it, we'll make sure this belief is realized in our life. We will fail. Our core belief may be almost unconscious, but we believe it, we fear it, and we obey it. In fact, we believe it in our core belief as the deepest, deepest truth of ourselves. I'll skip a little bit and just read the last paragraph. So the secret of life that we are all looking for is just this. To develop through sitting and daily life practice the power and courage to return to that which we have spent a lifetime hiding from, to rest in the bodily experience of the present moment. Even if it's a feeling of being humiliated, a failing, of abandonment, of unfair, unfairness, we learn to rest in our experience without thought, to sink into a non-dual state the body in and of itself, not in terms of the world. She continues, We learn to rest in our experience without thought, to sink into a non-dual state, even if we can stay only a few seconds at first. With time and development, we learn to rest there for long periods of time. As we rest in this non-duality, we leave beyond, behind the phenomenal world of problems and dualistic solutions. We start with including and clarifying our psychological world, but we end in a transformation that cannot really be described in words. We we can only suggest a way of living that is free, compassionate, functional. And in this way, our so-called problems can be dealt with in a more open and compassionate manner. Call this enlightenment if you wish, but please remember, we do not, We do not do this bodily experiencing just once or in one sitting. We are describing a lifetime process with many ups and downs, probably one that is never complete. It doesn't matter. What does matter is the slow, slow shift in the way we see and live our lives. This is the end of our substitute life. This Zen practice is an end to our substitute life. So, you can get yourself a copy of that once Andra cop- or scans it for us, and then I'll send it out to everybody and put it up on our webpage. But let's just sit for a few moments together, let go of the words, trusting the experience of the body in and of itself.